This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. I am honored to have two gentlemen who I have listened to. I've listened to their debates. I've listened to their lectures in general. <clears throat> Dr. William Lane Craig is, uh, is here with, along with Dr. Michael Ruse. Uh, and I'd like to just give you a quick biography before we get into the questions of truth. Does God exist? What, what does God look like? Who is God? All those questions. So um, <clears throat> Dr. William Lane Craig is here. Uh, he is a, an American analytic professor, Christian apologist, author, Wesleyan theologian who upholds the view of monolinism. Uh, he is currently a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University and a research professor of philosophy at Biola University Talbot School of Theology. Craig has updated and defended the argument for the existence of God. He has also published work where he argues in favor of the historical plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus, which uh, <laughs> that's a big undertaking. Dr. Michael Ruse, a British-born Canadian philosopher of science who specializes in the philosophy of biology, and works on the relationship between science and religion, the creation-evolution controversy, and the demarcation problem with science. Ruse currently teaches at Florida State University. Gentlemen, welcome. Welcome to the mother of all debates. <laughs> uh, I, I, have, uh, I think it's important when you host a debate like this to kind of be transparent on where you stand. I am, uh, as I get older at 56... I am a believer in God. I find myself getting closer to God, not farther away. Uh, it, it, and, and, I, and I I seem to be able to more and more develop uh, maybe a rational argument for the existence of God. That's what I'm interested in. I have not, I, and I have enormous respect for Christianity as I study it. As I, really, I, I was raised a Catholic, but not really, you know, sort of a way, wayward Catholic. But um, I'm fascinated, I guess, with, the, the, the sort of demarcation here between Dr. Ruse and Dr. Craig in terms of, Dr. Craig, you do argue for the necessity in believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Dr. Ruse, you have a different point of view. I don't know if we want to start this by talking about the validity of Jesus as God. Rather, maybe let's just talk a little bit about um, your general philosophies, and, and maybe we can start the conversation that way, or if I'm open to however you guys want to start this conversation. I think that's a very good way to start. Just And the other, other thing I want to say is, yes, it is a debate, but I don't really look upon it as a debate in the sense of, at the end, we're going to vote. Right, because right. I, I, No, seriously, because I'd win anyway. But uh, <laughs> more, more, more importantly, because I think uh, Craig and I have things that we want to say and we want to interact, and we want, I mean, we're both teachers. We want people to go away to think for themselves. And with any good luck, they'll say, boy, weren't those guys just wrong? Total nonsense. Now, let me tell you what I think. So right. there you go. Well, I, so, I think that's a great, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because, Dr. Greg, you said when you host, when you when you do have a debate with an atheist, for example, you're not looking to change the, the person who you're debating's mind. You're trying to open the minds or at least... Uh, and maybe influence the minds that are open that are listening. So I appreciate yes, that. Yes, that's right. I, I have a real burden for university students because it was about at that age that I myself became a Christian believer and my life was radically upended and transformed. And so I want to share 
with people who are about that same age, the um, good news of of the gospel of, of Christ and God's existence. And I think that the best way to do this is in the context of giving a rational defense of Christian theism. And so Michael and I have actually debated before. We're old friends, and I too look on our conversation today, not as a debate, but rather as a dialogue or conversation about great. these important issues. That's great. Can yeah. you, can you on that, can you just give us a brief sort of um, history of how you came to this sort of, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus moment? Uh, you're, such oh. a, you're such a thoughtful and, and rather rational man. I mean, you, you, you have such a command of history and, and philosophy and sometimes I always think it's so anathema. It's almost like it, it, that contradiction is is always fascinating to me. Um, yeah, so I would be disingenuous, Brian, if I tried to portray my conversion experience as the result of objective, cold, uh, rational investigation. Uh, as a teenager, I was asking what I call the big questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning of my existence? And as I contemplated my own death and the inevitability of the eventual death of the universe itself, it seemed to me that everything is meaningless, that there is no ultimate value, purpose, or meaning in life. And so I was miserable. I, I, I understood the darkness and the despair that I later learned was so aptly described by French existentialist philosophers. And then one year, my junior year in high school, I walked into my German class and sat down behind a girl who is one of these types that is always so happy, it just makes you sick. And I said, Sandy, what are you always so happy about for anyway? And she said, uh, it's because I'm saved. And I said, you're what? And she said, I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And, and at that time, I was starting to go to church. So I said, well, I, I go to church. And she said, Bill, that's not enough. You've got to have him really living in your heart. And I said, well, what would he want to do a thing like that for? And she said, because he loves you, Bill. And that answer hit me like a ton of bricks. Here I was so filled with despair and and uh, and and darkness. And she said that there was someone who loved me, and who was it but the God of the universe? And that thought just staggered me. I, I couldn't take it in. Well, I went home that night and got a New Testament that had been given to me in the fifth grade by the Gideons when they visited our grade school. And for the first time in my life, I began to read it, and I was absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. There was a wisdom about this man's teaching that was undeniable, and I felt tremendously attracted to him. And so over the next six months, to make a long story short, I went through the most uh, painful and uh, deep period of soul-searching in my life that eventually ended in my completely yielding my life to Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that was a transformative moment, as you say, very much a Damascus Road moment for me. Mm. Uh, and I've never looked back since then. And Dr. Ruse, you had a similar deconversion. I mean, you I think you came up as a Quaker, didn't you? Yes, um, very much. In fact, I'm 
I'm pretty much the the inverse of Bill. Uh, <laughs> I um, was I was brought up as a Quaker. I was born in 1940, so as it were, I came to consciousness as I 10, 12, that sort of thing. And Quakers, of course, don't have any churches or priests or anything like that. But they have very strong beliefs, particularly about that of God in every person or what we call the, the inner light. And that's what makes Himmler so evil and a lion not evil uh, because Himmler is turning his back on God. So I grew up with this. But of course, I grew up after the Second World War, which was, quote, a good war as opposed to the First World War, which was just bloody stupid. Right. But you know, Hitler had to be stopped. My father was a conscientious objector, but he worked with Italian prisoners of war. I mean, he wasn't like Jehovah's Witnesses who said not doing anything. I mean, very much the Quaker way was to say, we're not going to fight. It does not mean we're going to not support our country, whether or not. And of course, we spent an awful lot of time at the age of 10 discussing whether that was hypocritical or not. Can you really free up William uh, uh, William Craig to go and fight while Michael Roos is you know, driving prisoners of war out to the fields to dig ditches? So, yeah. these are, so I grew up very much with that in a Christian context. But Quakers aren't big on reading the Bible or anything like that. I mean, it's much more the immediacy of the, it. It's the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. That's what really counted for us. And I certainly, now I went away to boarding school, Quaker boarding school, and I hate to say I had inverse experiences from Bill Craig because when I was away at boarding school, what mattered was, are you good at games? How important is your father? And I have to say, by the time I left there, went to university, I was still a believer, but you know, one day I just said, woke up and said, you know, I don't think I believe in God. Now, we talked about, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus experience. I did not have in reverse, as it were, suddenly saying, oh, my God, Richard Dawkins is right. I'm an atheist. <laughs> yeah. And you, and, you, and you criticize and the new atheists. Be, yeah. That would be the big embarrassment of my whole life if I ever <laughs> said anything like that. <laughs> But anyhow, as I say, uh, it was more like the, you know, Lewis Carroll's uh, uh, poem, The Hunting of the Snark. The snark was a bosom, you see, softly like the baker. My faith just softly and silently vanished away. I really thought that by the time I'm 70, I'll be back on side like Anthony Flew was. You know, you get to 70, yes. you can't afford to make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So I thought I'd be back on side. What absolutely amazed me was that I did not feel that at 70. I did not feel that at 80. However, what I have found, and I think, I think it's always been there, but increasingly at this age, these sort of moral messages, uh, spiritual messages that I got from Quakerism as a child have become more and more pressing. They've always been pressing, but they're more and more pressing. Now, please understand the one thing I'm not doing is substituting some kind of humanism for my Christianity. I, I, I hate humanists. I don't hate. Yeah, I always say. Well, humanists seem to take Quaker, credit. You for... can't. You can't hate Christianity. You just can't. Right. But I sure right. as hell can hate humanists. Uh, you know, because I, <laughs> I, I think that's. I think that's just a cop out. So, as I say, I'm a, a agnostic, and a final word I'll say is. In many respects, I'm attracted to what is it, apophatic theology, where one can say what God is not, 
but what God say what God is. Okay, I've done well, enough talking. About no, it. I appreciate that, and and that's a that's a great characteristic. But my my thing about uh, <clears throat> Dr. Craig. I, I, I can't get away from the fact that all of us, whether we're atheists, whether we're Quakers, whether we're, we're uh, religious in, in some way, there seems to be uh, an in, it's very hard to get away from the idea that we admire the example of Christ the man yeah. who died with nothing and gave everything and put his own body up, 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 up to, uh, below a higher principle. We, we seem to admire a man like that more than any Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Julius Caesar, there seems to be a, an inherent understanding that when you walk in, in someone like Christ's footsteps, you that somehow dovetails along with the tide of the universe, at least the good direction uh, that the universe takes. So, so it, I, I find, to your humanist thing, I, I find that people take credit for the notion that they believe in equality, that slavery is bad, that, that we are not to judge anyone, that if I kill a wretch on the street or I kill uh, Bill Gates, I do the same amount of time in prison because it's not for me to judge. These are all things that atheists would agree with, but they really do have their roots in Christianity, don't they? <clears throat> yes, I think that's true. The moral transformation of Western society as a result of the Christian faith has been uh, enormous and incalculable, I think. And so many of the Enlightenment values that are affirmed by humanists are, in fact, deeply Christian because uh, Christians believe that man is made in the image and likeness of God and is therefore a bearer of intrinsic moral value and the possessor of inherent human rights, uh, which command respect for other persons and demands that we treat other persons as ends, not merely as means for our own selfish purposes. Yeah, and that's, uh, Dr. Craig, um, I'm sorry, do uh, Dr. Roos, um, can you respond to that? And can you turn your camera, can you angle your camera down a little bit so I can see more of your chin, sir? I got to see that beard. Fantastic. Look at that. I don't have a chin. That's why you can't see it, okay? <laughs> but the yellow, the yellow is a great contrast to that, that wonderful skin of yours. Uh, but I once had a friend come to stay, and he went into the bathroom in the morning, and he was there for half an hour. And I was wondering if he was doing rude things to his body. I came out, and there was a razor blade package there. I realized he'd been shaving. And I thought, <laughs> you know, the time I shave every morning by not shaving. Yeah, Anyhow, I agree. I'm, I'm, you and I'm I with are you. part of the... The same thing. I'm with you. Anyhow. But but but, so, um, but just to, to jump on to piggyback onto what yes. Dr. Craig said, there yes. there does seem to be more truth, more truth in that a better yeah. way to live would be to walk in Christ's footsteps as opposed to Julius Caesar's footsteps. And that's uh, when you extrapolate in that direction, that's what brings me closer to the Christian example. Uh am I am I uh, am I misguided? <clears throat> no, you're not. However, what I'd say is let's put the Christian religion into context. And for me, putting the Christian religion into context basically is Augustine and Aquinas. And I mean, I, I'm not, not a Catholic, but I mean, if one looks back, and certainly Protestants owe a huge amount to Augustine, but where did Augustine and Aquinas get their, as it were, philosophical, what should we say, background, Plato and Aristotle. So I, I, I mean, without in any sense 
saying, I don't want to be, obviously Plato and Aristotle weren't Christians, but I see an awful lot of what Bill Craig wants to praise uh, from, as it were, growing up in, in a Christian environment, a Christian heritage. I'm not going to deny that, but I think it's a mistake to think it's, as it were, it only occurred when Christianity came along, because I would certainly want to put this all against in the background of, of as I say, uh, Plato and Aristotle. I mean, I suppose they're pagans, but that seems very weird to, to call them. That. Mm. Socrates might have been. I think Socrates would have enjoyed dancing around the, the fire, stark naked with a bunch of good-looking young men. But uh, I don't see that a Plato or Aristotle. But so right. I'm clearly... At one level, I'm entirely in agreement with, with Craig. But at another level, I want to say only to stop where he stopped is only to tell half the story. Dr. Craig. Well, I would say that we need to remember that Plato and Aristotle were themselves both theists. And so the medievals, like Augustine and Aquinas, found a great deal of commonality with uh, Aristotelian and Platonistic philosophy. So there is a theistic uh, grounding in those worldviews as well, even though they had no knowledge of biblical religion. Right, in the sense that there was a soul, that, that you could prove that there were young souls, there were old souls, that that this was not this this rusty machine, this, this sort of machinery that my soul is trapped in is not the end all and be all. There is the Isle of the Blessed. There is something beyond this, right? The idea that we, we can we can imagine perfection we can imagine beauty in its perfect form right is that is that well so you're talking plato now <laughs> yes. but as well in aristotle he thought of uh god as being the first uncaused source of order of the cosmos uh transcending the cosmos um and so he had this notion of a transcendent god that he called uh, most good even he, it was the source of goodness as well Right. But so here's a question for you, Dr. Craig. Uh, it seems that Jesus was a first century <laughs> Jew who who believed in the Old Testament and prayed to or talked about the God of the Old Testament. Uh, I, I think that he came along and said, look, we, we need to simplify this this Judaism thing. Um, and and let, let's break it down into two, you know, do unto others and and um, and, you know, believe in just one God. But is it, I've always had trouble with the idea that it seems to me still that Christians, Jews, and Muslims pray to the same God. The, 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 the difference here is Jesus took on the embodiment of God to Christians, but it was, but, but Jesus took on the embodiment of the God that Christians, I'm sorry, that Jews and Muslims prayed to, right? So why, yeah, why such a strong a very important insight that the God of Jesus of Nazareth is the God of the Old Testament. And so people sometimes try to play off the God of the Old Testament against Jesus, when in fact it was the God of Israel that Jesus of Nazareth worshipped and served and called his heavenly Father and, and taught his disciples to worship and serve as well. So yes, there is that commonality, and I think where Jews, Christians, and Muslims divide is with regard to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he is the stumbling stone yes. um, uh, that divides our, us uh, as, as theists. We're all theists. We believe that the God has created the world and revealed himself 
uh, to the nation of Israel, but neither Jews nor Muslims believe that Jesus is divine, that he is actually God incarnate. And this was one of the most startling transformations in early Christianity of the Judaism that they had inherited. Sometimes um, biblical scholars have referred to this as a mutation, to borrow a biological metaphor, a radical mutation of Judaism to think that God is not unipersonal, but he's tripersonal, and that Jesus was, in fact, God incarnate. And so that would be a major difference between us. Yes. Dr. Ruz, you you could say, if I called you a theist, it wouldn't send you into a fit necessarily. You believe in intelligent design to an extent, don't you? It's just the can you can you kind of well, dial it on? Not to use that language, but go on. <laughs> well, you know, I I I think that I I can see a there's a big difference between you and Dr. Craig in that if I were to say to you that Jesus was has was risen, you would say that makes no biological sense. It's to take everything we know about Darwin, everything we know about evolution, and just throw it out the window. Um, it doesn't mean you don't live a moral life. It doesn't mean that that there isn't some kind of uh, you're probably agnostic to the idea that there is some intelligent and maybe benevolent design at the end of the day. Would that be fair? Well, yes, but I don't <laughs> think my uh, doubting a physical resurrection actually comes from science at all. I think, once again, it's very much part of my Quakerism that, for me, I'm fully prepared to accept on that Sunday, at some point, the disciples were sitting around feeling absolutely dreadful and downcast. And then suddenly... They said, our Savior lives, and it, it all changed. Now, I don't give a damn whether that was a physical resurrection, I d- doubt it was, or whether it was a psychological or what. I mean, the example I always use is Dunkirk. The, how on earth did the British army manage to escape and get back? Well, we know there are various sorts of causes. You know, the, for whatever reason, Hitler decided not to do anything about it uh, and all of those things. But it, the main thing is... The sea was absolutely flat, and so the smallest ships could go over. Now, if you are—I mean, if you ask anybody that I grew up with, was Dunkirk a miracle? They'd look at you as though you're queer in the head. Of course it was. Of course it was. It didn't save us, but God made it possible for us to, as it were, recoup and go back again. But it was it caused by miracles or was it a matter of just uh was it just a matter of meteorological laws i think all of the people would have said i it, that's not the question you ask that's totally irrelevant mm. what's irrelevant what's relevant is the meaning and as far as i'm concerned that's about the i'm you know the resurrection whether or not i'm i want to read into it what bill craig wants to read into it's another matter but i have no problems with the resurrection. I have problems with the idea that miracles must involve change of law. It's like the marriage at Cana. I mean, water into wine. (laughs) It's a lovely idea, but isn't it much more sensible to say that Jesus or others shamed the host into saying, God, I am a total, well, I can't use the word shit on this program, but you know what I mean. You can swear. swear. I've got to go down and get my best you know, my best burgundy and bring it up. So I take that to be the, the real miracle or the feeding of the 5,000 that the people who got food turned to others and said, please share, right. please share. Right. Now, that for me is 
the meaning of a miracle. So for me, as I say, I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea of miracles. But, but it's not even a whether question whether or not the, a, a, the, the laws are broken. It's just the irrelevance of the question of whether or not the laws are broken. Right, Dr. Craig, why is it, why can't I just, why isn't it possible for you to accept that maybe Christ was speaking in metaphor and the resurrection is a metaphor. And why can't you be a good Christian to believe that, that Jesus didn't have to physically resurrect, but rather there was a, there was a, a metaphorical resurrection. There was a spiritual resurrection. There was a, there was a resurrection within, within our hearts, which we have all the time, right? I mean, the, the, the stories yes. that resonate with us, whether we're children and around the world, whether you're, whether you are <clears throat> um, an atheist or not, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is is of some kind of a resurrection story, right? Boy to man, uh, girl to woman. You know the idea that I face my fear. I face I, somehow I am on on the cross, and I keep my faith, and I and I fight the dragon, even though my sword doesn't work, and I come through because I have faith in a higher uh, in in, in the, the fact that I'm guided. The resurrection story is repeated over and over. So why is it that we can't just speak in metaphor when we talk about Christ's resurrection? Why does it have to be the physical resurrection? I think fundamentally it's because that's not the way the historical sources present it. If they did present it as merely metaphorical change of meaning, fine, but they don't. They present it as a physical event that occurred in space and time and left an empty tomb in its wake uh, and involved post-mortem appearances of Jesus to the disciples that were far beyond anything that could be explained by natural law. So the sources do present it as a miracle, and we're challenged whether to believe in that or not. Now, the reason I think it's important to affirm its miraculous nature is because it is precisely the resurrection of Jesus that is God's public vindication of Jesus, who was crucified, you remember, because he had allegedly blasphemed God by arrogating to himself prerogatives that belong properly only to God. If this man has been raised from the dead, then God has unequivocally and publicly uh, vindicated those claims. And that would be the basis on which I would be a Christian theist rather than, say, a Jew or a Muslim. It would be because of the authentication of Jesus' claims that is constituted by his supernatural resurrection. Wow. Wow. Okay, can I be Augustinian at this point? Please. And go back to the early, you know, the first verses of Genesis. And of course, we get what was the sun invented on the first day, but daylight doesn't come along until the third or fourth day. Now, St. Augustine said, you know, we got a problem here. Obviously, what are we getting? The ancient Jews would not have understood, you know, cosmology in the way that we sophisticated fourth generation, fourth century uh, Romans can. So, of course, God spoke. The Bible speaks allegorically. Doesn't mean to say it's false in any sense. Doesn't mean to say, but it does mean that this is a a, a story, but it's. The, the real part of the story is the meaning. And I would go back straight away to the resurrection. I mean, these people had not done philosophy 101. So I, I don't expect the, 
the disciples or any others to be able to make the kind of distinction that I'm making. I mean, I'm not pushing myself up. I mean, I'm repeating arguments of others. But I, I would say this kind of argument, would, they wouldn't be able to grasp it properly. So I find nothing, nothing odd at all in the story of Jesus rising from the dead and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I take it that's the same sort of level as God creating the sun on the first day, but not day and night until the third or fourth day. So it doesn't mean the Bible is false, either in Genesis or in the four Gospels. Yeah, and Dr. Craig, you always talk about the fact that there are contradictions in the text, but it's more of a, it's an emotional um uh, in, in inner knowing, isn't it? Isn't this where you... Well, no, no, no. I, I want to respond to what Michael has said, because I've just written, my most recent book is entitled In Quest of the Historical Adam, where I explore these early narratives in the book of Genesis that he just spoken about. And in doing literary interpretation of texts, it is absolutely vital that you first determine the literary genre or type to which that literature belongs. At, for example, the Psalms are poetry and therefore are not to be interpreted literalistically. Uh, the book of Revelation in the New Testament is Jewish apocalyptic literature, which is filled with symbols uh, not to be taken literally. On the other hand, the books of uh, first and second Samuel are straightforward historical writing. Now, when you come to the opening chapter of Genesis, as Michael has said, this belongs to a type of literature that is mytho-historical. It has very close resemblances to other ancient Near Eastern myths uh, that provide a kind of origin story for a society or culture that anchors the values and institutions of that culture in the deep primordial past. And it's significant, literarily, that myths need not be taken to be literally true, as uh -huh. Michael said. So I don't take Genesis 1 to describe God's creating the world in six consecutive 24-hour days. But here's the crucial point. The New Testament Gospels do not belong to the genre of myth. Scholars such as uh, Richard Baucom and or Richard Burridge and others have shown that the kind of literature that the Gospels most closely resemble is ancient biography, like Plutarch's Lives of famous Greeks and Roman. And as a biographical genre, these um, narratives have a strong interest in history. They purport to give an accurate account of the life and teachings of Jesus, including his crucifixion, burial, empty tomb, and post-mortem appearances. Um, in the 18th and 19th century, there was an attempt to explain away the resurrection narratives on the basis of Greco-Roman mythology, and that has come to be universally rejected by contemporary um, biblical uh, critics and historians of uh, the life of Jesus. I don't think anyone would defend that today. And so given the literary genre to which they belong, it, it would just be inaccurate to interpret this 
uh, on the model of Genesis uh, 1 to 11. You see, this, I think, Bill, shows the difference between us. <clears throat> How do you regard the book of Ruth? Oh, I I don't know. Um, Michael, I, I, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, and I've never studied. I mean, I've read the book of Ruth, but I don't know. You see, this is the thing. If, if anybody asks me, what is the most beautiful book in the whole Bible? I would say the book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. I think when Ruth says to Naomi, whether thou goest, I will go, you know, but your God will be my God. I mean, even now, I, I go to tears. Yes. Now, it seems to me this is a wonderful story uh, about loyalty, devotion. But of course, it's also uh, a story about a foreigner becomes part of the group. And dear God, she's the great grandmother of David. I mean, so I, I see the book of Ruth as a wonderful story about loyalty, about families, about all of these sorts of things. And But it, is it true? Is it literally true? Was there really a Ruth or not? For me, that's, that just simply doesn't matter. It's, well, it may not matter the meaning to of the you. Story for me. Yeah, it might not matter to you, Michael, but the question would be, how did the author intend it to be understood? Did he understand it as a historical narrative or as simply a lovely story? And that's going to depend upon your literary genre analysis. The Bible is composed of all sorts of different kinds of literature, poetry, biography, history, uh, epistolary literature, uh, wisdom literature. And in order to interpret the Bible accurately, you cannot have this sort of flattening um, approach to it. That, That approach, Michael, is the same as the fundamentalist who just opens the Bible and says, there's a promise, the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it. You know, that kind of flattening hermeneutic is extremely naive and I think very mistaken. And you see a lot of the new atheists, the new atheists seem to do that with the Bible, with believers, right? The new atheists kind of assume that all believers are literary and they're fundamentalists, and they kind of like reduce it to its, its, you know, its parts. And it's never it's never that inspiring. I'm sorry, I'm, I interrupted you, Dr. Roos. Oh, I, what I was about to say simply was that I think a literary person looking at something which is written down would not necessarily think that what the author was trying to say was necessarily what is being said or necessarily what speaks to us today. Mm. I mean, yes, mm. obviously, at some level, the author's intention is all important. But I could well imagine somebody saying, let's say Jane Austen, uh, somebody reading Jane Austen today could say she, what she was showing was certain aspects of, say, male-female relationships and these sorts of things that we now, in a, if I say post-Freudian, doesn't mean I'm a Freudian, but you know what I mean, <laughs> that we today would be inclined to look at this and say, yes, what we see being enacted with Lizzie Bennet and Mr. Darcy and these things, we see now what's going on in a way she might have grasped, but I don't have to say that she would have been able to spell it out in neo-psychiatric or, or whatever terms. So it's the same with something like the Book of Ruth. Uh, I'm, I, 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 it just seems to me 
I don't care whether it's true or not. I mean, it would be nice if it is true, but, but, but I don't you, care. You have to... What for me is what, it's the meaning of the thing yes. that counts. And that takes me back to Christianity, is for me, the literal resurrection and all this stuff about it must be true because it was women who first saw him and women didn't have the status that men have, so it can't be, it has to be authentic. Well, yeah, somehow, for me, that's almost sacrilegious. <laughs> We shouldn't be getting into those arguments. We should be getting into what's the meaning of Jesus's love and his death on the cross. Now, I can see a real argument going on, say, between those who believe in substitutionary atonement and those like Eastern Orthodox and Quakers who think, no, it's more an example of perfect love. I can see meaningful arguments there. But, oh, my God, it must be true because it was women who first reported on it. Give me a break. <laughs> Well, Michael, that argument, and just to make it clear for our listeners, this is an argument that has persuaded probably the wide majority of New Testament critics, Jesus scholars, that the narrative of the empty tomb is not just a metaphor, but it's an actual historical event. Why? Because if this were just a literary creation of the early church, in that patriarchal culture, they would have had male disciples discover the empty tomb. Peter or John, whose witness was credible in that society. The fact that it is women whose witness was regarded as untrustworthy and, and worthless uh, is best explained by the fact that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb, and the gospel writers faithfully record this. Now, I grant you that doesn't give you the meaning of the narrative and its subjective importance for one today. But at a historical level, this is a really important argument that most New Testament scholars have found uh, compelling. You know, Dr. Craig, you well, are you you said something very interesting, and I, I want you to respond to this in a second, Dr. Ruse, because you are somebody who believes in objective truth. And I think that human beings have... Uh, a predilection to 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 sort of believe in an objective truth. Even if you were to say, and you said something really profound to me, you said, I, I listened to you at a debate, you said, well, there's no such thing as an objective truth, except for that, except for that statement, which must be an objective truth. The objective truth, there's no objective truth. So it, it, it's a trap that a human being, it's impossible to get out of when you, I, I, every time I read all the philosophy I can, I find myself going in a circle. And, Dr. Ruse, where do you find objective truth, and is objective truth the 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 goal here? Even if even without the idea of of Christ being God, or or even God being the God of the Old Testament, or, or whatever, where do we, where do we find objective truth, and is objective truth worth the endeavor, <clears throat> worth the reach? I suppose. Who's that a question for? Oh, that was for you, Dr. Roos. Uh, um, because it seems to me that the objective truth that Dr. Lane is arguing for is that Christ was risen and and that he was indeed God. And, 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 and then he's got his, you know, he's got his body of work to prove that that is the case. Where is, is the idea of looking for truth, and I'm saying objective truth, worth, worth the effort? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But obviously, our, we differ over what is objective truth. I mean, 
I mean, I'm getting the feeling that we're in a, a Kuhnian situation here, that we've got oh. two paradigms and they're incommensurable. It doesn't mean that Bill Craig is stupid or, or even though, you know, I might go away and say, my God, that was a bloody silly argument, wasn't it? But it doesn't mean that. It means that he's seeing from one perspective the rabbit if you know, and I'm seeing it, I'm seeing the other perspective, the duck. Uh, and I have a feeling, you see, I want to talk about objective truth just as much as Bill does. But it, if I were a Christian, I would be absolutely committed to the idea of objective truth that, yes, Christ did rise. But what did that mean? It meant that the disciples felt in their hearts, in their minds, that their savior had not left them. He was there. He was supporting them. And he was obviously giving them, telling them, you can't just sit on your bums now, folks. <laughs> this story is only just beginning. You've got to go out and do something about this. And for me, I, I can't think of any more objective truth than that, any more than the, the crucifixion. I mean, I want to say, yes, obviously, Jesus sacrificed himself. Uh, why? Well, of course, there we differ, perhaps we differ over how you interpret it. But so I, I worry about talks about objective truth in this sort of sense, because I would want to say my position, if I, if, I mean, daft, isn't it? But if I held it, would be just as <laughs> objectively true as Bill Craig's position would be. So you know, here, here we've got the difficulty of the two. Mark, you, if I can just slew a little bit. I'm wondering, could we talk at least at some point about what we actually do believe about God yes. and what we actually do believe about the hereafter? Yes. Because let me say, let me say what my position is. And my position, it, very quakily, it's almost it, mysticism appeals to me that, as it were, these are unknown. You know, is why is there something rather than than nothing? I mean, I don't think that's a stupid question, like mm. Wittgenstein and others thought. I think it's a perfectly meaningful question. It's just, I have no answer to it. I have, I, I just have no answer to it. So I'm, what, as JBS Haldane said, not only is the world queerer than we think it is, it's queerer than we could think it is. And for me, something like body-mind is, that's a miracle. Why the hell? Can molecules think? I mean, and don't give me all the stuff about, you know, Dan Dennett and, and materialism or others, Dick Humphrey and emergentism. They don't work. I mean, we've got a real mystery there, like quantum entanglement. So I find this a very mysterious world that we, we live in. I don't think, however, that that guarantees that there's going to be a hereafter. I would think as likely as not, we're going to have what Socrates called, what was it, an eternity of, of dreamless sleep or, mm. or something along those lines, if, if you were to ask me to put my money on it. But I, I just don't know. So for me, what makes my life meaningful in a way is it's a mystery. And so now the question becomes, what do I, Michael Roos, do in this? Do I go with, you know, saying simply, like Cam, you said, oh, well, it's all absurd. Or do I say, I'm going to make some meaning out of my life here and now? I, I don't, last Saturday, the Met High D had Don Giovanni. 
I came away and said, how can anybody say this life of ours is absurd when somebody can create something so miraculously beautiful and people can interpret it? So as far as I'm concerned, what, what do you call it, the Pelagian heresy, if you do everything trying to get into heaven? I, I think here we are and our job is to love others and to work with others and to have discussions like this. Because obviously, Bill, you and I aren't just, as I say, we're not debating. We're trying to explore. We're trying to offer ideas. And we're hoping that the hundreds of thousands of people who are going to watch this YouTube podcast are going to come away and say, you know, both Craig and Roos were totally full of it. Now, let me tell you what I... But what we, no, 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 no. That's what we want as teachers. But I think we're also trying to get closer to the truth. These discussions have merit because in our heart of hearts, all of us are making this effort as we, especially as we get older and we get more passionate about it because we're trying to get closer to the truth. That to me is where I start finding faith. So, so yes, mystery. Yes, I'm a romantic. Yes, I love wondering. And I don't want all the, I don't want, don't pull back the curtain and show me all the machinations. It'll show me the methodology, but it's still not going to tell me why. And, and we are still, we can't get out of the fact that we are sitting here, the three of us, in, in, we can say what we want, but we're not talking in circles. We really do want to get closer oh. to the truth. And that's the value here. And so that, yeah. that, that Dr. Craig always leads me closer to uh, the idea that I have to, I need scaffolding. I need bedrock I can anchor into. And that if that means I have to accept or embrace an objective truth, even if it's an act of faith and saying Jesus was God, I can understand why that's a very important thing to embrace. It's, it really is an act of faith, and it's a very scary one. But, but I'm sorry, but that, that's just my two cents of kind of seeing where you're well, headed. I want to reinforce what you're saying about the importance of the quest for objective truth, because Michael and I, at a very deep level, fundamentally agree that there is objective truth out there to be found. It's not just all in your head. It's not all subjective. There is a way the world is. And I think that we also agree on many of the methods to find objective truth, such as logic, uh, empirical evidence, rational intuition, and argument. And that's why I reject the incommensurability thesis that you spoke of, Michael, from Thomas Kuhn. I think there are ways of adjudicating these competing paradigms of reality, and Therefore, I'm prepared to give arguments on behalf of uh, the theistic worldview that I think make it more plausibly true than the atheistic or agnostic worldview. Well, let me just swing round on that and bring up two things. One that troubled John Hick a great deal, who incidentally became a Quaker at the end of his life and went to the same <laughs> school that I went to. But and he didn't have, was my doctoral mentor. He was my yeah, doctoral mentor. Didn't have the, the bloody awful headmaster I had. Anyhow, uh, how do you deal then with a Buddhist who grows up totally ignorant of Judaism, of Jesus, of any of these things, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. as we look at their life objectively, we want to say, yes, that truly was a good person. They cared about others. They they cared about their family. Uh, they tried to tell the truth. They, they tried to help others, all of these sorts of things. But 
They did it in total ignorance of, of, of Jesus, of any of these things. Now, that's the one th problem I have. And of course, the other one is the problem of evil. How on earth yes. do you create your God with Heinrich Himmler? Hmm. Well, the problem of the fate of the unevangelized, as it's called, is an issue on which Christians have a diversity of views. My own view is that the New Testament teaches that God judges people on the basis of the information they have. And so people who have never had the advantage of hearing uh, the gospel of Christ will not be judged on the basis of their faith in Christ, because that would be manifestly unfair. Rather, they'll be judged on the basis of their response to the light that they have. Now, how that is, or uh, what they, how their response is, that's up to God. I'm glad it's not up to me to judge. But I, I don't think anyone will be unfairly condemned uh, because of the accidents of history, uh, history and geography. Hmm. That's that's a great answer. I didn't I didn't expect that answer from you, Doctor Craig. That's, hmm. that's, I've written fairly extensively on this, actually. And I, I have, remember at the beginning, you introduced me by saying I'm a Molinist. Yes. Which probably most of your audience wouldn't. I don't know what, what that means. Is, but, uh, I've offered a Molinist perspective on this problem of the unevangelized as well, that I think is very provocative and, and helpful. Very much so. Go on. Tell us what it is. Oh, well, it is that God, uh, prior to his decree to create the world, knew what every free person would freely do in any circumstances in which he would place that person. And so God has so providentially ordered the world that everyone who he knew would freely respond to the gospel if he heard it is created at a time and place in history where he does hear it. Uh, and so long as that's even possible, it shows that there's no inconsistency between um, God's being all-loving and all-powerful and some people not hearing the gospel and being lost. Gosh, that seems to me even more out to sea than uh, <laughs> it must be true because there were only women who saw. I, I, oh, that, I, that's a good, <laughs> if you disagree with the women argument, you are putting yourself in opposition to <laughs> a wide majority of New Testament historians. <laughs> You don't have to buy my Molinist view, but my Molinist view merely needs to be possible in yeah. order to solve the objection. You it's see, like the free will defense of the problem of evil. It just needs to be possibly true. But, oh, God. I, well, the problem of evil, I mean, I don't know what you say. I mean, it, at a certain level, I find myself almost, well, sympathetic to process theology at this point, uh -huh. that, you know, God is, you know, is struggling along with the rest of us at some sort of level. And uh, I mean, I'm not saying I believe this, but I do find aspects of it very attractive. The thought that when Anne Frank is dying in Bergen-Belsen, God is there suffering with her. I find oh. I, yes. find I, I would affirm that as well. I don't believe in the impassable Deity yeah. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. What well, is the, what well, I'm, I'm sorry. What is the impassable deity? What is the impassable uh, uh, deity? Are you sort of cherry picking uh, the Christian beliefs you, you want? No, no. I take the, the New Testament, I take the, the revelation in Scripture as my norm for Christian doctrine. And the things that it clearly affirms, I will affirm. But the things that it leaves open, is a matter for philosophical and theological debate. And doctrines like impassibility and simplicity and timelessness 
are clearly, I should say, are not taught. They clearly are not taught in the New Testament. And so these are um, open questions to be explored and provisionally, the answers provisionally held. Dr. Ruse, do you believe that there is a direction in history? Do you think that we are we are moving in a we are 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 we moving closer to the truth as human beings? Are we going to is is there a direction? Is there a uh, a purpose to history? Because you know when you talk about evolution versus creationism, for example, evolution is 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 provable. You 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 can point to evolution, and there are a lot of examples of evolution. That doesn't mean evolution doesn't exist within a larger context. There may be a larger truth within that sort of embodies or circles evolution, right? So, is is there? Do you do you ever? How do you wrestle with the idea that there is? Is there a direction? Are we in? Are we? Is this circular existence, or is there an alpha and an omega? Uh, I'm very dubious about drawing analogies between what happens in biology or the physical world or our knowledge, and what happens in the cultural level. I, 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 I yes, I do believe that we know a lot more than people did, let's say, 500 years ago. I mean, I think that the double helix is right. And I think that the double helix has led to some very interesting, even practical you know, answers, I mean, GM foods. I mean, I'm not unaware that there are debates around it. But I, as I see, if I were going to use the word progress, I would be happy to do that. When it comes to human societies, you know, the problem is, yes, if I look at the last century, I think we have made progress. I think the United Nations, excuse me, for all its problems, prevented a third world war, which might very easily have happened. On the other hand, I say to myself, if I were to forecast in the next, let's say, 2,000 years, 20,000, let's say 20,000 years, will some weirdo in the North Korea of the time let off atomic bombs, which, of course, will be responded. And the next thing is, you know, we're like the Neville Shute story on the beach. You know, it, it's going to get us all. So I I don't want to say that's going to happen, but I'm very unwilling to say that progress, social, cultural, if you like, progress is is necessarily forward. I mean, frankly, in my own state of Florida, of Florida I think in the last year, we've seen an awful lot of anti-progress, you know, cutting down on blacks getting elected. Uh, Bobby, you disagree with me on this, but the uh, uh, opposition or or oppression of women with respect to abortion, the uh, anti-gay, all of these things, anti-immigrant, which is something I feel very badly about, particularly since I'm one. Uh, But... uh, well, I am, uh, but so I'm not. I'm not convinced that cult, that progress is necessary. I mean, if you want an example of where progress does not happen, Brexit. I cannot think of a more stupid thing to do than Brexit. Although I know but why. I, I, was, I was actually talking I, more. I grew up yeah. in England. You know, I know yeah. about the English. <laughs> I, I was. I wasn't talking so much about policy, and I agree with our ebbs and flows. And we've always got this debate between you know right and left and liberal conservative. 
which I think is by design because I think you need both in a society because they, they fulfill different roles. But I was talking more about the idea that it, let's just take there's a dark side to technology, but there's also there's also a side to technology. I always wonder as we are tapping into the neural net and we are and the Internet brings us closer to understanding what it is like to be someone else. You can have these virtual experience, you know, experiences about what it's like to be a refugee uh, in, in a tent somewhere and things like that. There does seem to be um, this idea that human beings are more aware. So someone in Iran, a woman in Iran who gets shot at a protest rally and her father is holding her as she's bleeding out on the, on the pavement. All of us, whether she's in a hijab or whatever, all of us who are rational people understand that that person there is dying exactly the way my wife would die. That father there is feeling exactly how I would feel if I was holding my child, even though I'm a world away. Um, I don't think that that, I think that is something that's different. I think that, that Christianity has always preached that and tried to bring, or religions have, let's say. Um, but I, I, I do think that we are able to, see that more and more with technology. And my, I, I guess I was asking, that seems to be for a reason. That seems to be, um, it, it does feel like we are being nudged closer together. I don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. I don't know what miniaturization of thermonuclear weaponry will be or, or gene editing when you can edit a virus and that can kill all of us. I don't know where, when the apocalypse comes, if it ever does, but it does seem that that there there is a direction. It feels like we are all, at least all of us, believe in some direction, even if you're a scientist and a, and a radical atheist. The idea is science can free us. Science will move us in, in a direction that is pain-free. We'll live much longer, maybe forever. You know, this is the Ray Kurzweil thing, right? Uh, that, that, the science, science, scientists are just as religious in many ways about their science. Uh, and I think human beings can't escape the idea that we are, ultimately, we believe in something. We believe in something. Um, so maybe, maybe uh, I don't know if there's a question there. I just want to throw that out there. I think that although many evolutionary biologists would disagree with this, it's obvious that the evolutionary process exhibits progress uh, from primitive bacteria up through eukaryotic cells, uh, on up to uh, fishes and amphibians and uh, mammals, uh, and finally, human beings. The history of life on this planet has been one of increasing diversification and complexity. And so there's definitely a direction to evolution in that sense. And even more important, there is progress and directionality in terms of self-consciousness, rationality, and the realization of the moral idea that uh, moral values uh, come to be expressed uh, in man. You have in man a moral agent endowed as we said earlier with intrinsic moral value. And that's why we recognize that killing in Iran to be uh, as morally abominable as the killing of one of our loved ones. It is because of that intrinsic human value uh, that did not exist in the evolutionary process previous to the origin of man on this planet. So I think there's definitely progress to 
the evolutionary process of life. But here is the dark note, the sad note. As I said at the beginning when I described my teenage despair over the prospect of death, all of this is doomed to destruction in the heat death of the universe. As the universe expands, it grows colder and colder. Eventually, all the stars will burn out and there will be no light. There will be no life. The stars will collapse into dead stars and black holes, which then may dissolve eventually into a thin gas of radiation expanding into the endless darkness uh, and the cold recesses of, of space. And this is not science fiction. This is the way it's really going to be if God does not exist, if atheism is true. So on the atheistic story of, of life, in the end, it's a tragedy. There ultimately is no hope. There is no purpose, uh, which we are realizing everything is doomed to destruction. What about multiverses? Right. In each multiverse, you will have that thermodynamic demise of that universe within the multiverse, so that each portion of the multiverse will become increasingly marooned and isolated from other parts and will soon grow, well, not soon, eventually grow dark, cold, dilute, and dead. So that ultimately, that doesn't provide a means of escape, wholly apart from the question of whether there really is a multiverse out there. Yeah. Well, of course, you could, if you have multiverses, I don't see any issue about multiverses, uh, you know, being created or however it is coming into being on a on a temporal basis. I mean, we know that our universe has a temporal basis, doesn't? What is it, eighteen billion years ago or whatever? So, uh, but uh, you see, this is part of the problem. I think which where we are divided is that for you. There is a meaning to it all with a capital yeah. M. And this, this is all important for you. And this is how you put your perspective. Whereas, I, if you like, I really am an existentialist. Uh, I, I don't have that comfort, if you like. Yeah. I, 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 I think that if you want to say life is meaningless at some sort of level, however, I don't think it, as I was saying, I don't think that means there's no meaning uh, or anything like that. I just feel that we've got to recast the way we think. And it, so even if you're right, for me, I would rather go my way than, as it were, say, well, it's really important to get on side, uh, you know, before it's too late. Uh, so this is my problem, is I, I just don't have that well, what is it, sense of divinitatis or something like that, oh. that Plant Plantinga is always going on about. Uh, so but where can you accept? Here? I mean, as I say, I'm not an atheist. I, I, I if, if anything, apophatic theology it suits me, that I, 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 I can say that God is not Michelangelo's God, you know, holding out his hand to Adam uh, and a lot of other things. I mean, obviously, but that's I a don't meaningful statement. It's just like a human writ large, because if he is, I don't know how the hell you could explain uh, Heinrich Hitler, uh, Heinrich, Heinrich Himmler. Uh, so for me, so much of it is just a mystery. And without, well, of course, now it's going to come round without saying I'm a braver person than you are. 
uh, Bill Craig, uh, I am because I'm prepared to, to face up to, as it were, the abyss in a way. If, and I, I don't really mean this in a nasty way. But I think you, as it were, took another path when you were 16 or however it was, old it was when you were chatting up this girl in front of you. But do you, but you do, but, but Dr. Ruz, you are looking for meaning that the, the whole point of this conversation and your life and the, and asking these questions and studying the leaders of thought in all these fields, I believe, you know, is points to the fact that you are in one way or another, at least trying to get closer to something like the truth or get closer to being more right than you were wrong. And so what is that direction? If we were to extrapolate that direction that you seem to have dedicated your life to. Isn't that, well, isn't say. that where you're looking for meaning? Isn't the, isn't, aren't you in the direction of truth when you're trying to do that? Aren't you, cause you are agnostic, but you are pretty religious in some ways. It sounds like, you know, I mean, it's hard to get out of this trap. I don't think that you are a man who th says, well, it's all meaningless. I don't believe that. That that's, you wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> just an interjection. When you call me Dr. Roos, I kind of, I feel terribly embarrassed. The only people who ever called me Dr. Roos were students who hadn't done their assignments. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be me. That would be me. I've always been a hopeless student. <laughs> and you look like the kind of student that I'd have trouble with. When I say, <laughs> when I say midnight on Monday, I do not mean eight o'clock on Tuesday morning. <laughs> That's me, baby. Anyhow, I come up with a thousand excuses. Uh, yeah, I would like no. to uh, make it clear that what I said about the ultimate hopelessness and purposelessness of an atheistic view is not meant to be an argument that atheism is false. It may very well be the case that the truth that we're talking about is dark and tragic. Um, but I think what this does go to show is the importance of the question. I don't think anyone can live consistently and happily within the atheistic framework uh, of life because it would force you to regard your own life and moral decisions as ultimately meaningless and purposeless. But I think it underlines the importance of asking ourselves, well, which view of the world is true? Is a theistic worldview true or is uh, an atheistic worldview true. And we haven't actually discussed any of the arguments for the existence of God uh, this afternoon. Maybe we'll need to have another program where we get around I to would that, love to do I, that. I would defend various arguments to break this incommensurability that Michael describes uh, and give some grounds for thinking that a theistic worldview is actually true. Can you? Can we do a? Can we do a round two on that? I would just love to do that. As just we can start I'm there. Uh, yes, and you're right, actually, Bill. Of course, we haven't discussed these things. However, which was the topic agree. for today, right? Yes, <laughs> I think we both agree that we have been engaged in really important issues. Yes, uh, we've not been, as it were, shunting it on one side because these are too difficult or they're just going to lead to clashes. I think, personally, I think the way this conversation has gone has been fantastic, really. I mean, I think that we've grappled with, with some issues that really need to be brought out and be, be, to be discussed. But let me, I don't know how much longer we're going to go on. We've got but about five minutes. Let me just simply say that uh, I 
take the challenge of the meaningless, metaphysical meaningless of the whole thing to be a challenge as to don't give up. Don't just sit on your bottom and, you know, like the like the chap in the A.E. Mills story, you know, and then he sat on his bottom until he was saved. Uh, uh, no, I, I think what we try to do is make meaning of our life as it is. And I would say serving others and also inquiring about the world, epistemology and ethics. And I think you can make for a very meaningful life. I, dear God. This last hour, anybody who said that this has just been meaningless or something like that, well, you know, they flunked. I'm not going to pass them. Maybe you would because you're a Christian and you're nicer than I am. But as far as I'm concerned, what we've, be, what, what we've been doing is something which is tremendously meaningful. It's yes. not meaningful with a capital M. But uh, well, well, I think it is. <laughs> I, I say with a capital M. That's where we do. <laughs> well, Doctor Craig, can you can you tease tease us with uh, maybe if you guys would grace me with with another of these? I want to do a round two because I'd I'd like to. Uh, can you just in wrap in closing, uh, give me an idea of what you wanted to do and where you you wanted to make the argument for the existence of God? Yes. You, the question was why believe in God? Yes. Right. Yeah. And so I interpreted that question at one level to be asking, well, are there any good arguments for God? And so in my published work, I've defended about six different arguments uh, for God that I think make a powerful cumulative case. Can you go through those six? Can you give us the footnotes? If I might say so, I think that that is a hint for round two. A hundred percent. I think that would be a really good place to start. Yeah. Where do we stand, first of all, on reason versus faith? But then uh, what do you think that reason can do? And yeah. I think that those, I, I see that as something we obviously haven't talked about today that we should talk about, but let's make it, as it were, round two rather could than I, it on. Could I be permitted to simply list the arguments yes, that I had? Yes, please. And, and I want to apologize to everybody. But, I was so excited about having you both on that I got I got kind of wrapped up in in everything, and I just I did a terrible well, job of sort of you know pushing you in that direction. But I just I was so in, I was just I've been enjoying just this whole conversation. So we definitely need a round two. But please, please state the the six arguments and then okay. i want to so get here's into that just next a time. list of arguments that i would be prepared to discuss with michael number one god is the best explanation of why anything at all exists rather than nothing two god is the best explanation for the origin of the universe at a point in the finite past number three god is the best explanation for the applicability of mathematics to the physical world Number four, God is the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe for embodied intelligent life. Number five, God is the best explanation for the objectivity of moral values and moral duties. And finally, number six would be that the very possibility of God's existence entails that God actually does exist. You just got punched and six times. Could, six times you just got punched. Salivating. <laughs> salivating. Yes. <laughs> we have laid the groundwork. This has been nothing okay. but an introduction, ladies and gentlemen. 
Dr. Craig, Dr. Ruse, I will continue to call you that because I'm not a good student. As you can tell, I couldn't, I, I, I got lost, but I got so excited and I'm still very excited. So please, Grace, this is for round two. This has been a teaser. This was the appetizer <laughs> for the main event that is going to come up. This has basically been the weigh-in and the stare-down. And I am, I am honored that you graced me and this podcast with your time and your ideas. And I think there's no, this is the most important discussion, at least in my life. So I'm very, very excited. I want to thank you both for taking the time. Please allow me to, I'll, I'll reach out and we'll try to schedule round two sooner than later, I hope, because this is, uh, I'm salivating as well. <laughs> you threw six okay. punches, I'll, six I'll punches. Give you, I'll give you till five o'clock this afternoon to get in that paper without taking marks off, okay? I, I'm on it. I promise Brian Booth will reach out to both of you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you. And, and Bill, thank, with you, thank you too. It, it, I love talking to people like you. I just, <laughs> you know, no, and I say, it's not a debate. I mean, obviously, we want to make our points, but I feel that we haven't been trying to, as it were, score points. We've been, no. we, we, these are interest, These are important issues, and they should be talked about by very intelligent and very learned people. <laughs> you're, okay. you're both. You're I'm both good men. I say okay. you're, you're both good men, and you do good work. I have okay. to tell you, and it's just, it's, uh, it's really an honor to be part of this conversation. Okay. Thanks Bye a lot. Then. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.